On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One and... It is the new year, so I'm going to give you a little bit of Canadian content. We are going to start with the band Sticks, and I know what you're thinking. No, they are not Canadian. But Lawrence Gowan, more commonly referred to simply as Gowan in Canada, is my first guest. And we will finish it with somebody who played on Brian Adams' Reckless album, the one and only drummer Pat Stewart, who's currently with the band The Odds. And in between... Right in the middle of those two, I'm going to put in Robert Berry. He's been in a bunch of bands over the years. Uh, three, which all, which is also known as Emerson, Berry, and Palmer. He took part of, um, played with Ambrosia and Alliance that has Gary Phil and uh, Alan Fitzgerald and Sammy Hager drops in once in a while to play with them. But on the phone at first to get the uh, cavalcade of craziness started it is the one the only sir alan niven bonjour monsieur niven bonjour mitch i hope you had a wonderful holiday uh i was titillated to get an email from you telling me that i could now rush out and buy the guns and roses litter box for a mere 500 dollars now it's now half price um, yes. And I'm still sitting here and going, you know what, guys, go and take a look at the Nazareth box and their pricing and then try and justify 500 bucks because I ain't buying it for 500 bucks either. Yep. No, I agree. And by the way, we talked about the, the Nazareth box set on a previous show, and I, and I forget what it was, but it's something like 23 discs or 30 some discs for 100 bucks. And it's just like, oh. Wow, what a yep. deal. <laughs> what a deal that is. And and yeah, the Guns N' Roses one, it came out, I think it was $1,200, and it was down to $699. And, and, and I kid you not, but I have spoken to somebody who was involved with the whole thing, and they tell me currently worldwide 50 <laughs> copies were sold. Now, are they being facetious? Is, is that factual? I don't know, but I don't see any reason for them to lie to me. Um but they I said, think they're exaggerating. Yes, yeah, probably more like 25. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? There there are two problems with that box set, and I don't want to make it a box set thing because I do want to get over to Gowan. But uh, first of all, music fans want music. Uh, whoever came up, and this was with every box set, where you have fake laminates, fake guitar picks. I mean, if it was actually guitar picks that Slash had in his pocket on stage in 1987... Oh, okay, but I mean, a fake guitar. No, no, nobody cares. And the fact that some of the songs, those demos, "Shadow of Your Love," and were recut with God knows who in the studio. Uh, the, the, my understanding is with the current band Frank Ferrer and stuff. 
Uh, I know I've spoken to Stephen Adler, and he said, "Listen, that ain't me playing drums on those." So uh, that that let's let's, uh, let's move on from the uh, yeah uh, disappointment of the litter box, as I but call I, it now. But and I was let, and let's get on to Gowan sticks. Yeah, let's get on to Gowan. Yes. Um, so let's get on to Gowan. Lots lots of great stuff. They had an album in 2017 called The Mission, all about I guess going to Mars and 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 taking over the planet Mars was, which was interesting. And of course, it was nice to have uh, Larry or Lawrence Gowan uh, as part of that. And man, he has been wonderful. I have spoken often about how Kelly Hansen and his voice saved Foreigner or Foreigner wouldn't be anything, wouldn't be nearly what doing what they're doing, you know, tours with Whitesnake and stuff without Kelly. But same has to be said for my confrere Canadien, Monsieur Gawin. Um, he really fit in. Is he Dennis DeYoung? No. And I love Dennis. I spent some time with Dennis actually in October. But what a man, what a voice. And uh, so let, let's, let me tell you everything they're doing they are on tour in january doing i guess just regular stick shows and then in march they head off on a tour with larry the cable guy opening and i know folks are going to say what what what, the comedian listen metallica just did a tour with jim brewer opening so i'm going to throw this to you alan what do you think of these new configurations because there seems to be you know you have Journey going out with Def Leppard, which would never would have happened in the 80s. You had Foreigner going out with Whitesnake, which would never have happened in the 80s. And you have comedians opening up for rock bands like Metallica. And that's no, that's not a slouch. I mean, Metallica is, is it's Metallica. And now Larry, the is are, do we need to have these new packages? Is it interesting to you? Is it, is it novel? What, what's sort of your take on it? Well, it kind of runs against my grain because I think if you're Metallica, what you ought to do is identify a worthwhile up-and-coming band and expose them to your audience and continue that tradition that made rock and roll really healthy throughout the 70s and 80s. Um, I mean, you know, it's like Don Rickles opened for Frank Sinatra. Okay, Metallica, go go Vegas, if that's what it is. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, hey, guys, find a decent band. Take them out there and help them build up so that in their turn, once they have a following, they can bring out a worthwhile band and we get a bit of continuity there. I think it's short-sighted and I think it's greedy and, oh, my God, I'm sure Metallica needs the money. Let me ask you about that, then. Do bands... One, I'll call them heritage, heritage acts just because that's a term that people like to throw. Do they have a responsibility, and I underline that, to take – like should Kiss take out an, an up-and-comer? Should should Metallica yes. – should so when, Yes, ab- absolutely. I, I, I think that is um, giving back to the environment that has supported you so well. I think that's part of giving back. It's uh, – you know, you guys should be able to identify somebody who's – worth listening to for 45 minutes take them out there let them let them build an audience um you know people complain about the state of the industry taking larry the cable guy out does nothing for rock and roll true but let me let me put this at you for example white snake went out with foreigner or should i say foreigner went out with with white snake if foreigner picks up some 
up-and-coming melodic rock band and puts out that package of up-and-coming rock band with Foreigner, you know, I don't think I would have seen them at the Saratoga uh, Performing Arts Center. I think I would have seen them in a theater somewhere. So don't they also have an obligation to themselves to put together these great packages that are going to sell and are going to make money? And I know that's a terrible word, but that's what we do it for. Yeah, well, you know, how much is enough in any one go? Um, when I was a nipper a long time ago, I remember being in the heat of a New Orleans summer and in People's Park, and I saw Foreigner, and I also saw Fleetwood Mac, and I also saw Bob Seger all on the same bill. And, you know, they obviously shared the income from that show but that is an utterly memorable afternoon i remember that really clearly that was a great afternoon of music um taking larry the cable guy out i mean come on guys you can do better than that well yeah well i find it interesting because i i like i like comedy so if i could get you know jimmy carr from from england opening up of for course, of course you like comedy you go to kiss shows but <sighs> Ah. <laughs> you gave me that one over oh. the plate. Oh, gut punch, gut punch. Uh, all right. Whew. I'm just going to move over to uh, to Gowan. I don't know if I can recover. I'm going to need a, a few moments. Uh, <laughs> without further ado, a fellow Canadian known as Gowan, a criminal mind, here is the one, the only, Larry Lawrence Gowan. We are speaking with Lawrence Gowan from the band Sticks. The band is currently on tour in the U.S. And later on in March, they will be heading out with Larry the Cable Guy for a few select shows. Uh, uh, Lawrence, always, always a pleasure. Uh, lovely to talk to you, Mitch. So, so let me talk to you quickly about Lawrence uh, or Larry the Cable Guy, because some would call this an asymmetrical kind of concert pairing, but... Metallica right. just took out Jim Brewer, so comedians yeah. and rock bands don't seem to be that asymmetrical. Talk, talk to me about that that combination and just doing something different than not having another band on the bill. Well, you said it. It's really just that you know we tour so uh, you know incessantly with usually with a pairing act of uh, another classic rock band uh, under the normal circumstances, but. Um, it, it's nice to diversify it a little bit and, and try something else. You know, I mean, if we could get a Cirque du Soleil show to open for sticks, that would be pretty great, wouldn't it? So uh, we met Larry, uh, the cable guy. I like, I like. You almost said Lawrence, the cable guy. Was he's a very classy cable guy? Yeah, he is. Larry. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that name. So Larry is. Uh, we met him maybe about. I'm going to guess roughly nine or ten years ago in of all appropriate places it was at a truck stop and i believe it was in arkansas or louisiana we just kind of you know we were both in the place at the same time he was an obviously a sticks fan because he came up to us and started talking to us and, and we began to realize who were, you know who it was we were speaking to because he was dressed like every other trucker that was in the place and uh <laughs> and then the notion of us doing some kind of show together or something was kind of floated then but, you know, we never really thought of it much. And then uh, I guess the promoters this year suggested it. And we both kind of went, yeah, we actually talked about that years ago. So let's just do it and see what happens. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, Metallica, I've, I've tried it as well. And we, 
you know, why not? Why not? Why not give the audience something a little bit different as an opener? Um, and we'll, we'll see how it works. I, I think we're going to laugh ourselves silly, and then, uh, uh, and then, and then, and then Larry the Cable Guy will come on. No, no, I think we'll, we'll uh, he'll be a great opener for us, and then we'll have the stick epic adventure as people have come to know it. The the limited run that was announced is is essentially through March. Is, is that something though that that is very limited? We do this in March and then that's it. Merci beaucoup. Or do we see more dates uh, get announced at some point? I don't I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say. You know, when we did um, two years ago when we did the residency in Las Vegas with Don Felder of the Eagles, uh, you know, we thought, well, this will just be a one time thing. But it was so. Uh, you know, overwhelmingly popular. We just decided we would repeat it again. Actually, it was in, it was in 2018, um, and uh, you know, so these these pairings they may say. I mean, that even believe it or not, <laughs> that seemed like a, an unusual pairing us with the uh, with one of the uh, mainstays of the Eagles. But um, you know, in in those shows, we actually played some Eagles songs and became his backup band. So for about five or six songs and then went right back into the stick show. So it, it, it's nice to, to change it up. And, uh, if it, if it's really successful, you can, I can guarantee we'll do it again. Um, or something or something of a similar nature because, you know, audiences, they, uh, they're much more open-minded now about, about what, uh, you know, what, what they can see on any given night at a, at a classic rock show. Yeah, I agree, because you look at some of the packages that went through in 2018, for example. Def Leppard and Journey, had it been 1988, never would have happened. Foreigner and Whitesnake, 1988, never would have happened. And, of course, Sticks and Tesla. I mean, back in 1988, people would have said, ooh, what are you doing? But now it makes sense. So, yeah, so just talk to me a little bit about that, the the fact that fans have just become – more accepting there there's less sort of genres you know you can be a tesla fan and a sticks fan i think we've touched on this in the past uh mitch where you know rock music particularly anything that is connected to the classic rock era let's put it that way or anything connected from 1950 let's pick a year 56 until 2000 that that really was the, the monolithic musical statement of the last half of the 20th century so you know what what was divided and subdivided back in um, back in each successive decade of that of rock 60s 70s 80s 90s um that's become a much far more blurred line you know so in in the case of sticks you know within within the span of 5 or 6 years we have toured with acts as diverse as yes and this year or in 2018 Joan Jett so i mean <laughs> that's a very wide swath and yet the audiences really enjoy it they they you know they sometimes are are, are drawn more to when when the um when we fall into alike categories so to speak and sometimes they really embrace it in the case of joan jett last year and, and tesla they they just really embraced the fact that it was such a diverse um pairing you know you've got this uh you know incredible rock band is mostly mostly based out of the 90s in tesla um, and then Joan Jett, who is, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, you know, w- w- the, the absolute vanguard of, of women in rock, really. Um, and, and then you've got a kind of something between a progressive pop and, and heavy rock act in Sticks. And people seem to, to see that as all part of one big monolithic statement, as I like to call it, of, of rock music of the last half of the 20th century. 
Yeah, oh, oh, I agree. And it's it's nice to see because, listen, growing up in the MTV and much music era, we all sat around and just had the TV on all day. And you would watch Sticks come by and then you'd watch Platinum Blonde come by and then you'd watch Honeymoon Suite and, and Metallica. And yep. you just you didn't turn it off. You just went, yeah, OK. And it's nice to see that we're back to that. Let it let it go. Um, real quick, Sticks, of course, just came off a extended break, a couple of months, which you haven't done in forever. Uh, for years, me, yeah. for for years. So so, talk to me about about touring and being out there. At some point, do you tour too much and 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 need to sort of step away to let people miss you again, or is it important to just to keep coming back and just keep it going because the band live is just absolutely incredible. I think it's more the latter, quite honestly. Early, I mean, in earlier days, uh, it was good to kind of tour in a you know in one. Uh, strong spurt of touring and then, and then get away for a year or two, if you could. And, and as you say, try to make people miss you. We're in a different, entirely different era, as everyone knows now where, you know, the, a great live rock show is, uh, it's a pretty treasured thing by, <laughs> by a number of generations. Now it's, it's not just a, uh, um, you know, a, a, a whim, you know, for a lot of people, the majority of the audience, I suppose, this is the soundtrack of their lives. They can't hear it too many times. You know, I, I would go and see Elton John every night of, you know, of, of, of the year, if I could, uh, you know, or queen, if they were still, you know, you know, if, if Freddie were still around or even the way they are now, I, I just love the way what a rock concert does to me. And, uh, we are so, uh, completely, uh, absorbed in our, uh, virtual lives most of the time everybody's looking at their phones or looking at their laptops or you know looking at their phones and laptops while they're driving which you shouldn't do <laughs> but a rock concert uh is is really this this visceral human experience that you really can't have too many times i know this is part of why you know we'll go out for let's say we've got a run of say 20 shows in a row quite often we'll see uh, the same people show up at maybe four or five of those shows, uh, at least, you know, a, a, um, a small contingent of people who really want to get the, that experience over and over within a short period of time. And that's very common now. So we really want to stay out there. The other side of that you touched on is that unless you keep doing this, you, you lose it. You lose the edge of how strong the show is. We know how 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 powerful it is and how um how effective it is part of that is that we just keep on doing it and we don't let ourselves get uh, you know get fall, fall off the uh, the the trajectory of what the band's tra- you know there's an expression you know um if you rest you rust <laughs> and there really is that's really true for a rock band you really have to be doing it all the time to do it at the level that sticks uh, are at this point Oh yeah, I, I absolutely. Now, uh, you're doing this January run of shows. You're doing the the March shows with with Larry the Cable Guy, and of course, in the middle, you are running off and doing Gowan solo dates. So, so talk to me about that in the sense that, and we we've we've touched on it before that you get into yeah. an entire different headspace. It's not just Lawrence Gowan from Sticks sitting down and, and singing his songs. You really, ch- it's a different beast. You you change your costumes, you change the, yeah. your positioning yeah. on the stage. Uh, talk to me about that and, and having this sort of dichotomy of performance. 
Yeah, the, the the only thing that doesn't change between Sticks and uh, and Gowan is that uh, you know Todd Zuckerman, our, our drummer from Sticks, he's joined me on just about every Gowan show I've done since 2010. Um, no, it, it is a completely different mindset. First of all, Lawrence goes away and uh, Gowan takes over again, so we're back to the one name guy. Um, it's it, it, lyrically. Musically, although although there there's a certain simpatico between Gowan music and Styx music, and that both of them are very progressive rock uh, influenced, let's put it that way. There's a completely different approach, um, you know, between between the two shows, and you you've witnessed that yourself. You know, there's um, different lyrical content, different musical uh, starting point being the '80s, you know, as opposed to the '70s with with Styx. Gowan, Gowan music really is something that that that, um, that that blossomed out of the 80s and it stretched into the 90s and, and evolved through that era as well. But really, it's it's that 80s mentality that you, I have to completely immerse myself back in in order to do those shows effectively and authentically. So and I love doing them. You know, they really are the, the greatest of diversions from from playing in Sticks, and Sticks is the greatest of diversions from playing in Gowan. So the two really inform each other. You know, they really do balance each other out. And of course, I would imagine there, there hasn't been any thought of putting Gowan as an opening band for Sticks. That, that would be probably too much just vocally and just, <laughs> right? I mean, because musically it doesn't I work. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say never because the idea has come up a, a good number of times. Um, and we just decided not to do it, but I, I would, I wouldn't go as far as to say, Oh, that will never happen because I've done that many times in my life and, um, been proven wrong. <laughs> so I leave everything as an open question. Right. And, and uh, one of those things that has been proven wrong was the uh, song, Mr. Roboto, which you brought back to the set yeah. list in, in, I guess, 2018. Um, yep. Talk to me about bringing that back and the fans' reactions, because I saw you in Montreal with Tesla and Joan Jett, and you started yeah. playing that, and there was there was an audible gasp from the audience. They went, oh, my God! You know, there was a, a, a palpable excitement, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, I can clear up a couple of um, misconceptions that, that, uh, that have grown over decades. One is that... Uh, you know, Tommy J. Y. Chuck, they, they all lived through the, the Kilroy was here uh, experience. Myself, Todd, and Ricky, we did not. So we don't have the same baggage as they were carrying uh, when it comes to that album. That album, the, not really that album, but quite honestly, that the tour of that album is what initially broke the band up. Okay. And that's the way I've heard it in my sticks history class. So they have that kind of. Uh, clinging to their memory of it. However, never once did they ever have anything disparaging to say about the music that that um, that they did during that time. It just was uh, they were just completely exhausted and and they felt it was the wrong direction to go. Still, over over decades now, that song in particular from that album, Mr. Roboto, has survived and. I had no problems with, with, with us taking the crack at playing it ever because I thought, first of all, I like the character that's in the song. If you, if I, I can easily draw a, a line between um, the character and Mr. Roboto who's got something to hide 
and several of my own solo songs, you know, they come to mind where that's that's part of the, the theme that runs through runs through that. It's just it's a, it's a way of approaching a lyric that I particularly like. So when we began learning it, though, uh, Mitch, we um, decided, look, if if it sounds really great, we'll play it live. If it doesn't, we don't have to ever tell anyone we did this. So we were in, we were in a uh, sound studio in. Uh, uh, in Nashville for two days to, to kind of woodshed it. And during that time, Tommy Shaw and JY mostly were saying like, I can't remember what I played on this live, you know, as we're going through the song and Todd suddenly speaks up and he goes, well, at the time when you guys did this tour, Todd, Todd says, I was 13 years old and I was at the show and you guys weren't on stage when, when Mr. Roboto was played, it was just sung to the track. And then you guys came on the next song. You know that's how the that's how the show unfolded. The two of them went, no, that that can't be right. And then fortunately, YouTube was brought into uh, into, into active duty, and they look at the YouTube clip and they realize, oh my God, he's right. We've never played this as a band on stage live. So that gave us a great. That was almost like a great palate cleanser for those guys, where they went. Oh, fantastic. Let's approach it. Let's heavy it up a bit more like we do with other stick songs and make them more visceral in a live sense. And by the time we were at day two of, of, of going through it, we were very excited about playing it. And so the, the audience reaction to it has been great. And I think in a lot of ways, it's uh, kind of helped to, to heal uh, some of the um, residual uh, uh, bad feelings that they had about that tour way back when. Way back when. And, and, Speaking of, of of lyrical and stuff, matching it with the Gowan, I could see Roboto and Strange Animal as a one-two kind of uh, pairing in a concert. But okay, so let me ask you the, the other one then that everybody talks about, and, and there might be the controversial question of the day, but listen, Babe was a huge, huge song. We know who it's written for. We know the context. Yeah. But is that yeah. something that you would consider playing again? Because fans would love to hear it. I, I, I mean, it, it is a number one single. Well, I wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, that's, it's, it's a, a big part of, of the band's history. However, the very first time, and you know, I wouldn't say never, I wouldn't say never. In fact, once we were playing in Japan and, uh, uh, this is way back in 2000, I think it was, we were at the Tokyo dome and the, guy that uh, was the promoter for the show uh, came in and he um, he asked if we would play it. And that one time we did, you know, and it wasn't very good, but it was, it was basically, and that's because we just don't feel musically that it fits with the current lineup of the band, whereas the, all the rest of the material does. And the reason for that goes right back to Montreal in 1997, when I saw Sticks for the first time, when I opened for them at the uh, what was then the Molson Center, I noticed that Babe stood apart from all the other material they did and felt more like what it originally was intended to be. My from again from my Sticks history class <laughs> was that was that Dennis DeYoung wrote this wrote Babe for his wife and it's very personal and very um, very much almost like a solo piece that got added to. Cornerstone, that's the album that's on, I believe, um, and, you know, became a huge hit for Styx. It, it really is such a personal song to him, and I think it really is the, uh, it, 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 he is a solo artist. It's almost like that song is the bridge between his 
his uh, being Styx and and being a solo artist, it really stands as a, as a great testament to to his personal um, life. So, also in addition to that, I, I would say that it really didn't add to the show that I saw back in '97. It didn't add any any great extra thing to that show because that show had a whole different uh, character to it, and that song just kind of pulled it away from that much much like the um, songs that a couple, he did one or two songs from the musical that he was doing. And while those were really good pieces, they really stood apart from what the overall um, uh, character or the overall emotion of the show. So I made that comment when I joined the band, I said, it's funny because I know Babe was a number one song and a huge hit, but, but if we don't have to play it, I, I, I would really prefer to not play it and play something else. Like I want to definitely, I would never want to leave a lady, for example, uh, to play babe or something like that. And Tommy and JY looked at each other and went, we don't have to play that song. And then Tommy said, let's learn a criminal mind. So that seemed like to me, first of all, like what a great way to be embraced in the band where they just said, instead of that, we'll play a criminal mind. And, and um, so really I, I thought, well, that's, that's a more, that, that's a better line to draw between um, my, me being part of the band and when Dennis DeYoung was part of the band, you know, because I feel that we're, I feel that we're very much connected and always will be because there were only 10 members of Sticks right from the beginning until this very day. And it's the culmination of all their efforts that makes the band what it is today, how strong it is today and how proud of it I am. So I feel a kinship with all those guys, um, past and present and uh but there's a character to the band that just doesn't fit with that song um it would be almost like i i don't know i guess i guess if i if i were to make a a side analogy it might not make sense but it does to me if you know when queen did uh let's take the song say body language okay that was one of their hits from uh from the uh, from the 80s right right it was so it was so different from everything else they had done. If if Queen went out, let's just say Freddie was still with us, and and Queen were out, and they didn't play Body Language, I wouldn't miss it from their show. I know it's part of their history, and I know it was a big hit for them, but it's not a song that I feel is absolutely essential to what Queen is in the minds of a lot of people. So, I've, I've given you too long an answer here on this, but basically, perhaps one day we'll play Babe, but I kind of doubt it. Right, I got you. And and as, having seen you again in, in Montreal in in the summer, uh, seeing a criminal mind perform live worked for me. Uh, real quick, the mission came out a couple of years ago, and of course, the last time Gowan put out anything, I guess, was the Good Catches Up, right? In ninety five, or the or the Best of in ninety seven. Um, best of in ninety seven, the last one, yeah. Right, and and that had a couple of new tracks on it. So so where are we yeah. in terms of and and I'll do both sticks and Gowan. You waited sort of fourteen years to get the mission out between the last one. Is that sort of we did it and now we can just go on and, and do the shows, or do you want to get back on the horse and have something out in three years or five years and, and just to get a little faster? And then yep. with the Gowan shows, do, do and and all that, do you do you have this urge to say, hey, you know what, maybe I'll make some Gowan music too? <laughs> well, first of all, I can say Gowan <clears throat> music has continued on, and and I actually I, I've said this a few times. I've been. 
I have lots of material that is that has been recorded, and I actually did some stuff with Tony Levin and Jerry Murata, and the, the lineup that I had from uh, Gabriel's band. Um, and and I have it there. The only thing is this: I just don't want to put it out unless I have a concerted, focused time to promote it properly, because so many things just drift out and they're lost on the internet because you don't have the the live component or the time to properly promote it. I can't split myself entirely over the course of a year between if, if sticks were to take a break for let's say six months to a year, I would release pretty much immediately all the gallon material that I've been, um, that I've been storing away. Uh, but in the meantime, for example, when we went to make the mission, there were a few of those ideas that I wanted to, um, I guess, cannibalize to turn them into sticks things you see so i don't want to commit to putting something out a that i can't spend the proper amount of time to promote and b i don't want to take things off the table that that could be a great contributor to another sticks record so the mission really i'm i learned that lesson while we were making that album because there were a couple of ideas that i'm glad that i didn't uh, kind of let go out there and and uh and not have their full uh, uh airing as, as part of Sticks uh, catalog. I'm really, I'm so proud of the mission. That album, I, you know, we're playing it in its entirety in Las Vegas on the 20th of January. So that's the, you know, the demand. That's that's entirely driven by the, the demand of the of the, the Sticks faithful, like all and the, the fans that wanted to hear that record in its entirety. So we're having that great night. That's really the the, the main focus right now. And uh, as far as new things, we've already begun recording new things for another Sticks record. So we'll see how the timing works out. Everything is dependent on, on what the time dictates. Yeah, of course. Um, and then just real quick, we'll, we'll start wrapping up. But uh, you were, uh, you made, I guess, your acting debut in a movie called Another Wolf Cop. And, and, and Wolf yeah. Cop 1, you had some music in there to, Talk to me about yeah. being in a sort of campy uh, <laughs> horror movie, playing organo, and and but also honestly, is acting something that you would like to get into down the road and be, you know, in a Hollywood movie as a whatever role or get onto TV? Is, is that something that interests you, or is it sort of more like just a sort of a, a fun aside? It interests me, but it doesn't interest me as much as music. You see, that's that's the thing. It is I really enjoyed making the videos that we did in the '90s and the '80s, particularly, and in the '90s. But I, I really enjoyed those times because they were all centered on music, you know. But I also enjoyed I enjoyed the the, the process of 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 getting into that. So with Wolf Cop, which I, you know, thanks for coming to it. Um, it was a chance to play this wacky character, not unlike some of the stuff I'd done in videos in the past. So it was a fun kind of um, recess, so to speak, to, to get away from from doing music every single day of the year. Um, I've done a, I've done a couple more since then. There was one I just played uh, the Grim Reaper in a movie that I, I don't know when it'll come out, but it's called She Never Died. I seem to be in the horror genre. Um, and the other one was one called. <laughs> pretty cool movie actually i went to the hamilton uh uh film festival and it's a movie called side boob (laughs) and it's uh it won the best independent film at at toronto international film festival um 
just last September. And in that one, I just appear very quickly because the main character in the story is really enamored with um, music from the 80s. He's a current guy, but he's really complete. He, he kind of sets everything about his life on 80s music. And particularly the album Great Dirty World is at the center of it. And in the middle of the film, he pulls that album out of a, a bin in a vinyl record store and shows it to this lady from England. And so the story unfolds and eventually I appear to him in the film. And I enjoyed that too. And it's great when you hear, you know, they, in that one, they played Moonlight Desires as well. And, and it's great when you hear those things being part of a film today and, and, younger filmmakers they grew up with that music and they want to continue to champion it you know it's important to their lives so if i can uh if they want me to be part of it i'll always see if i can find a way to do it yeah and hopefully there'll be a, a wolf cop three at some point and uh I'll I'll end on I'll end on this one because we're 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 at half an hour. But uh, a few years ago, I guess 2014, you did the soundtrack of Summer, where you redid Hotel California with Don Felder and the guys from Foreigner. Um, just just talk to me about that song. First of all, did you play on that song, or was it sort of just sort of Kelly Hansen and Don and and Tommy and and is that something you'd like to see the band do again on another tour? Is get together and you know re redo one of because the version of that song is is brilliant. I mean, it really is just brilliant. Thank you. Uh, on that recording, I sang the harmony parts, and there is a little bit of piano in there and strings. So I I was able to do those bits, and and I actually played mellotron actually in, in some of the in some of the string parts on it and um yeah yeah i so i was on it i just didn't sing lead on it because the lead was uh split between don felder tommy shaw and kelly hansen but uh no it's our it's our four voices did all the uh all the harmonies and jeff pilson um produced it but uh no so a bit of piano and a bit of uh, mellotron strings is what i added to that and, and vocal harmonies but, and thanks very much i i think it's a very good a rendition of uh, Hotel California, and that's that's basically what we played when we did uh, when we do the shows with Don Felder. That's the arrangement that we do of that uh, of that piece, and it's great. Anyway, um, always a pleasure, and of course, uh, you will be in my neck of the woods in Saint Eustache, Quebec, at Le Zénith Perro Mutuel Assurance on February twenty fourth, and of course, head over to gowan.bombplates.com slash yes. tour for all the solo dates and for the sticks dates of course just head over to the sticks website and uh, monsieur gowan always always an absolute pleasure and uh, i just look forward to more shows because that's what we are all here yeah. for music man it's all that's about right. the music to to your mon plaisir mitch actually you know what i got one other thing that i'm doing next month on the oh. 24th yeah of january mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm doing the show belle bum in montreal oh nice oh. yeah yeah, so that's a nice. That, that'll be a nice way to, to introduce people to the the fact that I'm still alive and touring as Gallon, as well as being a member of Sticks. Well, I have to say, and I don't know how it is in other markets, but I know in 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 Quebec, when you say Sticks or you say Dennis DeYoung or you say any of those bands, there's a fan, a rabid fan base. I mean, there's just that music has been a soundtrack for the province of Quebec since the early 70s, and they've just never let go. Yeah. It is an un, unmatched um, uh, 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 fervor for the band. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we saw that 
you know, we, I, I, I see that and we, we've seen that every time that we've come to Quebec. So uh, let's keep it going. I agree. Thank you, sir. Merci beaucoup. Pleasure, Mitch. Great to talk to you. See Cheers. You soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. And a very, very big thank you to Larry Lawrence Gowan for uh, for that great great chat. Always always a pleasure to uh, to talk to uh, to talk to Larry. If you haven't seen the Wolf Cop movies that he is a part of, do yourself a favor. It is it is camp at its campiest, if I, if I can say that, Mister Niven. I, I'm I'm sure you have not seen Wolf Cop or Wolf Cop Two. Uh, but if you like some really cheesy Canadian horror movies with great music provided by Gowan, um, and he acts in it, you, you've got to go check those out. It's just it's it's hilarious. Just it's yeah. Well, well, are you right? Um, those kind of movies have extremely small attraction and appeal to me. But just last night, I rewatched again a documentary that I'd recommend that. Anybody who's got a television watch at some point, it's called A Good American. And I'm just going to say it is an essential piece of watching. Go watch it. I'm not going to say what it's about or what it reveals. But if you care about your world, go look at it. You know, as you were about to say that, I I was sure that you were going to say that people needed to watch Kissology 1, Kissology 2, (laughs) and Kissology 3. But, you know, uh, those are great, too, because they, they tell the life and times of KISS. But uh, moving on from KISS and Gowan and all that stuff, The Rules Have Changed is the new album by 3.2. And 3.2 is Robert Berry's new version of the band that used to be called 3, that had Emerson, Berry, and Palmer back in the good old days. And um, they are back. Oh, and of course, their big single back in the day, 1988. Maybe you know this. It was on Geffen Records. The uh, the song was called Talking Bout. Talking About. Talking About. Do you remember that song? I, I think I vaguely remember that, and I do remember Ambrosia. And uh, one interesting little tiny piece of trivia is that Ambrosia actually came out of San Pedro, which... Um, they like to claim it's the South Bay, but no, it's not the South Bay. It's San Pedro. The South Bay is Redondo, Hermosa, and Manhattan beaches. But, um, you know, there's a little bit of music coming out of that end of L.A. in, in the 70s. And, uh, you know, I think the guitar player um, went on to join uh, Bruce Hornsby. Um, you know, so there was talent in that band. Definitely talented in the band. And, of course, uh, Robert Berry also has another band called Alliance. And in that band, you have David and – help me with the pronunciation, but it's L-A-U-S-E-R, Dave Lozer or Loser. But that's, I know that sounds I, terrible. That sounds horrible. Lozer. I'd go with the former. Lozer. I'd go with the former. Right. And, of course, he was part of Sammy Hager's band before Sammy Hager ran off and joined Van Halen. There was also Alan Fitzgerald, which many people might remember from Montrose, Sammy Hager's band, and, yes, eventually – Night Ranger from 1980 to 1988. 
and on guitar with Alliance. And the band, by the way, still exists, still make records and still tour. There's also Gary Phil. And Gary Phil, of course, was famously in Sammy Hager's band and since 1985 has been a member of Boston. So so a good little band, a lot of great sort of melodic rock going on with that. And, uh, you know, uh, Classic Rock magazine out of the UK published a greatest uh, albums of 2018 and somewhere on the list or, or on their Facebook, maybe it was a fan that wrote in, they said that 3.2, this Robert Berry album, The Rules Have Changed was the best album of 2018. In fact, I think it is a fan who responded to the list on Facebook that said that for him, it was the best album and you know what? It is a solid, solid album. So check out the album, but first Check out my interview with the one, the only, Robert Barry. We are speaking with Robert Barry. The new album is 3.2. The rules have changed. Uh, it came out, of course, earlier this year on Frontiers Records. And uh, Robert, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. So much to cover, but uh, let's start off with 3.2. I mean, you were, of course, working with Keith Emerson. Um, yes. Talk to me about that just before we get into the whole 3.2. Were, were you looking at getting the band three back together and that's why you were working with Keith? Or were you just sort of hanging out with two buddies making these demos and there was no sort of concept of what it was going to end up? Just before we get to 3.2, what was yeah. sort of the backstory? I would say back in 1987, we got a band together and Carl Palmer, Keith Emerson, myself called three. Uh, we had a great time. We got along like the best of friends. There was no fighting, no ego clashes. We put all this music together. Uh, we got a record contract at Geffen. We went on a tour. Everything, you know, some people say the failed uh, three project because it was only uh, like a year and a few months that it lasted. But it didn't fail. It actually had a top 10 record. The tour was sold out. We did quite well. But Carl had played with Asia, and Asia was doing pop songs. And uh, rock songs, Mr. Progressive. And, hey, guys. <laughs> I, I got a band rehearsal going on here. You're, you're <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Um, Asia, Carl wasn't criticized for it. Keith hadn't done that before. And Keith was criticized uh, for playing, like, straight songs along with the mix of progressive stuff. And it was very hard on Keith. So the band broke up. He just didn't want to do it. We left him behind. My dream for 27 years was to do a follow-up album. I was really excited about it, but I knew Keith would never do it, so I never asked him about it. Carl and I had talked about it a bit, but Carl's so damn busy with his ELP legacy, we never got together. A company put out a live free in Boston CD. Uh, the response was great, but it showed up on our doorstep since we signed the deal and got a little advance. And the Keith was, eh, money in the bank, let's do it, let's release it. When it showed up, he played it at home one night. And he immediately called me. He said, oh, my God, we were such a good band. He goes, the fire and energy, the way we were playing. He goes, I just had no idea because the criticism had made him leave it behind. So I found the opportunity to say, Keith, why don't we do a follow-up? And he said, okay. And so it really was 27 years later, we were going to do the second three album. That's how it led up. You know, it, it was amazing because... I never thought Keith would do it. And here he was calling me bragging about how good we were. I thought, well, there you go. You know, people had made him feel so bad about it. 
In those days, without the internet, without big you know cell phones, we had them, but they were size of a suitcase, and the communication wasn't quite the same. So a couple of guys that write a letter to Keith or his manager at the time and say, "Hey, man, you shouldn't be doing songs. You should be doing the twenty-minute pieces and get rid of that Robert Gray, get Greg Lake back." I totally understood that. I, I was a Greg Lake fan myself, you know. But Keith took it to heart that they were saying, "You're doing the wrong thing, having girl background singers and stuff." Come on, Keith, get don't do that. Well, he really took it to heart. And then here we are, 27 years later, back into it, working on an album together. It was pretty exciting for me. It was. Now, as you were working on these songs with him, were you thinking we need to recapture a moment in time or something from the past? Or were you looking forward and saying, you know what, here we are with all this experience and all these years behind us with Alliance and with with all these other things? Let's create something new. Let's let's push this progressive envelope to it to the next degree. What what was sort of the mindset going in in composing these these tracks? Yeah, yeah. everything you said was actually considered. The three had a sound that Keith and I both thought was a great sound. There were certain keyboards that came out that year that were just great. The energy of it, but you know, it, the songs were kind of, a lot of them already written, and we put them together with our sound and our style, rearranged them. This time, really the only difference was we wanted to write for this album. We wanted to honor the past, this, the tone quality, the sound quality, where we wanted to go, the AOR kind of mixed with the prog stuff. But we wanted to bring it into the now some too. And we had many conversations on the phone about kind of outline for them, what we we're going to do. We also had many conversations. Since I'm here in my studio rehearsing here, I'll tell you, you know, Keith would play on the phone. He'd go, well, I want to do something like... <laughs> he plays it really fast. And I'd go, well, okay. And because I have a recording strike, I need to put it down to reference. i go, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I clunk through it. He'd go, well, you know, there's an F, A, and that, and then that chord. And I could have get it half speed. <laughs> He'd go, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's kind of slow, but that's it. I'd record that. Later on, when we're off the phone, I get it to the right, right, right tempo. So I'd have that piece in our writing, and I start writing lyrics and stuff to it. So we did a lot over the phone. He's only a five-hour drive away, but it was sort of freeing in a way to develop these things when we wanted to, when we had time, no constraints. We had no uh, the record company said total artistic control, take a year to do it, whatever. It was a very creative time, and we were having really a lot of fun. You know, it just couldn't have been any better until, of course, uh, we lost him. Right. So, so let me ask you, just in terms of the musical stuff, uh, you know, the, the untimely death. Do you now look at those songs that are sitting on your hard drive and and sitting in your studio, going, "Well, I can't use these. There's, there's, there's. It's too much baggage. It's too difficult. It's too hard." Or, or did you have the opposite thought and say, "You know what?" I've got to finish these for him. How much of a struggle was it to to get this to the fruition to where we have an album? Was it like, yeah, we got to do this. Get let's get back at it, or was it like, I don't know, like, I, I, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, you're very perceptive because you you sort of have both sides of of how I was feeling there. Although initially, I thought there was really no honest good way for me to finish this. I mean, we had written five of the eight songs already. Fiber, I had 20, 30% of his keyboards after playing. Um, he had sent me some digital files and that. We were going to get together after he came back for seeing his grandkids. But once he was gone, I thought, oh, I, I can't do this. This was so important to me. 
remember, I was half the songwriter and I was the voice. Keith was half the songwriter and he was the sound. So really, we had the whole package between the two of us. Um, not that Carl wasn't important, hugely important to a guy, such a really a motivator and a dynamo in every way. But, you know, the sound three and the style was there. And I thought, I can't do this. It wasn't for six months of sort of mourning and, and just thinking, oh, man, I've not only lost my most famous, my, my great friend, a funny guy, the greatest keyboard player in the world, but I lost this dream of the, you know, the second three album. I thought all of a sudden, maybe his son Aaron would play in it with me. So I called Aaron. Aaron got all excited. Wow, that would really be good. Aaron was suffering more than me, you know. Well, we were both suffering, but he lost his dad. So I said, let me, he said, he said, send me a song. I sent him a song. I made a mistake and sent him a really hard one. You know, that his dad had played. He called back. He goes, oh, whoa. He goes, I don't play like my dad. I, I can't do that. I said, well, yeah, I guess I, I should have sent you something easier. But really, there isn't anything super easy on it. You know, Keith was really the master. And what that had done six months after, you know, being very down and saying I couldn't do it, it made me revisit the material. It, the spark just started igniting. And I said, you know, ha we have the writing, a lot of it. I was going to do the lyrics and melodies anyway. I said, you know, I could finish up my part of it. And except for a few songs that I was going to write on my own anyway, I think I could finish this. Not with the plan to release it, though, because I just didn't know. I just wanted to do it for me because it was, it was my dream. I mean, wasn't even Keith's dream for 27 years, just mine, you know. So I finished it up, and when I was done, I had no idea what I had because I had spent so much time on it. Um, I just didn't have a clue. I didn't know it was good, bad, or indifferent. You know? Well, it turned out great, actually, and, and I'm glad that Frontiers picked it up. But So where do we go from here? Do you, do you want to sort of keep the project going and, and get 3.2 to a stage and, and get this music to fans in a live setting and sort of honor the memory and honor the music and honor the band from the eighties that, 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 you know, talking about was, was certainly a, I mean, what was it? Number nine on billboard. Yeah. It, it was a top 10 song. Yes. Do, do we move forward well, in a live setting? Yeah. Let me, let me say this. You and I were talking about Steve Hackett. I admire him and what he's done. Big comeback, great band doing super stuff. I want to actually put out my 30 years in progressive music history, which started with GTR when I replaced Steve Hackett in with Steve Howe. It goes into three. It goes into a band called Ambrosia that I toured with for a while. I have an album called Pilgrimage to a Point that has back then the songs I was writing for a second GTR and a second three album never got released. We come all the way up to 3.2 and in between there I had a tribute series at the label not called Magna Carta where I did Roundabout by Yes and Steve Howe actually did it with me and a couple other things are very notable I got a letter from Steve Howe saying much he loved the baseline but wait a minute the baseline was the original Roundabout but even though he liked his new one I have a letter from Ian Anderson saying that the Jeff Lattell song I did Vincent Gally was his favorite on the album so I'm going to put all this 30 years of history together and get an hour and a half, uh, sort of the greatest hits of, of Prague of the 30 years that I've been involved in and put it on the road. That's the plan for next year. 
That's that's a great plan. And now, where does that leave us with the other band, Alliance? Is, is that something that's still an ongoing concern? Do you still get out there with, with Alliance and Gary Peel and, and, and David? And, yeah. And, okay. Gary Peel, is. I'm looking at him through my control room window right now. We also have a holiday band called December People. And David Lauser is the drummer. Gary Peel's a guitar player. We have Dave Med from The Tubes. As a keyboard player, Jack Foster and myself. And we go out for charity. And we play this certain mashup of uh, classic Christmas songs, a classic rock thing. And after we're done with our last shows, Gary and David are staying behind here. We're going to finish up our, you know, I honestly, it's our fifth Alliance album, but it might be our fourth totally original one. I, I can't remember now. It takes 10 years to do one. We're like Boston. Gary's always busy touring and, you know, Boston does an album every 10 years or something. We're kind of like that. So. Yeah, it's still coming out, but 3-2 is the focus of, of my whole life right now. I'm just doing interviews all the time. Uh, I'm getting great reviews. I appreciate what you said about it being a good album. Yep. Um, I'm so thrilled that people are feeling Keith in the music and saying things like, wow, that guy still had it. You know, listen to that writing and listen to those parts. And, it, it, and that means a lot to me. I wanted, if that's going to be the last thing, at the bottom of his Wikipedia page or in his history, whatever it is, I want it to be something really good. And that's why I struggled about releasing it. So I really appreciate the, the compliment on that. Yeah. And, 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 and Frontiers has done a good, uh, a good job with it. And, and uh, just real quick, if, if Gary's ever up for an interview, more than happy to talk about Boston and Sammy Hagar with him, that would be, uh, that would be great. But um, let's just get back to, to three Emerson, Barry and Palmer. Uh, well, you before know, we do that, yeah. I gotta say, Gary, would you ever be interested in doing an interview with Westwood One in Canada for uh, about Boston and Sammy and all that? Hear that? He said, "Sure, awesome, awesome." Right, so there we'll, you go. we will we will set that up uh, after, yeah. and and we'll get that done. Okay, that would, that would be it. a great thrill. Um, you know, he's he's contributed greatly to to my musical history in terms of albums I've loved and. I think he'd have some great stories, but just real quick, uh, yeah. you know, 1988, 89, you know, the late 80s roll around. How does Emerson and Palmer look around and say, OK, we need somebody else. We need a, a third guy. And how does three start? You know, what's the genesis? How do you how does this exist? What was the sort of connection? Where did you sort of say, hey, you know what? We'd, we'd make a great band together. You know, it's so interesting. You're talking to me on my iPhone, but right in front of me is my studio phone where Carl Palmer called me out of the blue. 1986 it was. We tried for a year to start a band and then we didn't, we didn't work out, so I joined GTR. But he called me and goes, this is Carl Palmer. Um, I've heard your cassette tape. I said, yeah, I thought it was a friend of mine, you know. Sure, yeah, hi, Carl, how you doing? Like, no big deal, like car salesman. Oh, I'm fine, you know, I'm here sitting at Geffen Records. Yeah, yeah, Carl, great. Well, John Kalander gave me this song, and he mentioned the song, and I thought, holy smokes, this is Carl Palmer. I mean, I was at a local band, you know. He goes, I really like, I want an American voice in the band. I like your songs, uh, the style of music. I would really like to um, get together and talk about starting a band. That was it. He goes, my manager, uh, we'll see you in San Francisco a couple weeks, he'll be there. We'll go from there. Fantastic. What am I going to say? No. <laughs> you know, so I said, wow. I got off the phone. I was sort of stunned. I just sat there going, this is one of my heroes. I mean, Keith wasn't involved in that. I was just Carl. Carl moving on from Asia, trying to get something to happen. Like Asia, 
but he wanted more of an American voice, a little bit rougher, you know, voice, more soulful, whatever it is the American voice is, I don't know. But so we worked for a year trying to get something together. It didn't work out. Joined GTR. That wasn't the best situation for me. I did great with Steve Howe. We wrote a bunch. We spent all kinds of time together. Lovely guy, talented guy, just really one of the best people I've worked in my life. But the singer didn't care for me because I was singing. And that caused me a lot of, he sort of, you know, bullied me a bit. So I quit. I thought, I don't want to be bullied. I know there's something better for me in this world out there than to be in a, my first well-known band and, and be harassed all the time. So as I was leaving, the manager called and says, Keith Emerson wants to have lunch with you. He loves your cassette tape. <laughs> I'll say that again. That's a long time ago. Cassette tape. Good old cassettes. And, uh, yeah. He and Carl are uh, very interested. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer. Wow. So I met with him. Nicest guy I ever met. Um, I was worried about meeting him. I thought it'd be one of those crazy mad geniuses that like, doesn't speak in complete sentences because he's so into what he does, you know? And it turned out to be completely different. He was a, a gentleman. He was funny. Just couldn't be a greater guy in the whole world. I mean, he was accessible to everybody um, always had a joke, not always a good joke, but always had a joke. Uh, and of course, the best musician, uh, keyboard player you could ever work with. I learned so much from him during that first album in the recording studio and writing in his, his studio at his barn at the house. Spent a lot of time with his family. Um, it was, you know, for the new guy, me, coming from, I'm in Silicon Valley here, California, coming from here, moving to London, and actually living there. No friends I had grown up as guys I just met. Keith made me feel at home, and so did his family. And it was a very super creative time for me, and actually opened up the creativity for the rest of my life here. Since that time, it really changed me. He was a great. Um, just real quick here, because I, I I do have to get uh, Mitch Ryder on the phone. Yeah, isn't that fun? Yeah. To say? Isn't, isn't that fun to say? I got to get Mitch Ryder on the phone. But uh, yeah. to the power of three. Album is top 100 on the Billboard, so obviously successful. I mean, that's not a lot of albums get into the top 200. Um, right. Just, just talk to me about that album and and what was it that resonated with the fans, and and why didn't we get to a second one? You know, it was really interesting then because grunge was starting to creep into radio. We had Nirvana, um, Guns and Roses, which are you know not really grunge, but. Uh, you know, dirty rock. rock was, yeah. Yeah. Super guitar rock was coming in. And what was really cool that I, I got to say, out of 100 stations we went to and talked to, 94 of them, let's say, said, Boy, your song sounds good on the radio between everything else. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's powerful. It's got this big sound. So, in one way, it was good timing for us because we were a little bit different, but Keith was the, one of the few keyboard players besides Eddie Van Halen that could actually play a keyboard tune based mostly on keyboards and compete in a guitar world. It had that power to it. So that was a good thing. They loved it. It was different. Um, it got lots of great audience response from other stations, but grunge was taken over. The guitar was taken over big and keyboard music was going out the window. And even though we weren't like a new wave or, new age or a dance music electronic anything like that we were still keyboard based so that hurt our chances a little bit um 
maybe of a second single. It was all ready to do. We had all the promo, everything ready. Um, and Geffen decided not to do it. And that's what really bothered Keith, too. We thought, hey, if they're not going to support us, when we have a number nine song on the charts, we should have the next single on. And they said, no, go back and do another album. So that, that was kind of a tough thing, too, for us. But the success was really great. Like I say, you know, the album was really on top of the charts. We couldn't have done better than that. No, you couldn't have done better, but there you go. And uh, just an absolute pleasure talking to you. Of course, uh, 3.2 is out now, and uh, the rules yeah. have changed. certainly have changed in the music industry. It's not like in the 70s where you made an album and went out and toured and everybody was happy. Now it's streaming and digital downloads and all kinds of nonsense. But uh, 3.2, <laughs> the rules have changed. Uh, folks, a 20-page booklet with that. Yeah, if you get the they say people don't buy CDs. They sold out on Amazon in every country by noon day of release because it has the whole story of how we work together, why every song was written, why it was finished the way it was, and it really it resonated with a lot of people. I'm I'm amazed. I I just I still can't believe it. Yeah, no, it's a great package, and uh, I do I do recommend getting the CD. I'm I'm an old school CD guy. I'm not into the like Alice Cooper said to me, why would why would I want to own air? We were talking about MP3s, and he says, why would I want yeah. to own air? I want to own something that I can hold, and so I'm I'm down with that. Uh, great pleasure, Robert. Thank you, Mitch. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we're, we're going to get to Canada. There's there's plans. We don't think book yet. There's plans, but I want to meet you in person, shake your hand, and uh, let you see the crazy uh, musicians I'm going to put together for this thing because it's going to be an amazing. Uh, hour and a half of music is going to be super hard. Yeah, well, <laughs> bring, bring Gary with you. That's, uh, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, really, huh? Absolutely. Cool. All right, man. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. We'll talk to you later. Cheers Bye. now. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. And a very, very big thank you to Robert Berry. Do yourself that favor. Go check out the new album, 3.2 The Rules Have Changed. It came out back in August, and fans who uh, have spoken have said it is one of the best albums of 2018. Monsieur Alan Niven, while you were running around back in the day with Great White and Guns N' Roses, I was fully uh, ensconced in the trials and tribulations of... Brian Adams and Reckless back in 1985. And my next guest now plays with The Odds, but at the time was the drummer of record on the album. His name is Pat Stewart. And I had a chance to meet Pat back in 85 at the Montreal Forum. In the good old days of lax security, uh, it was very easy just to walk down sort of a back staircase and get to backstage, the backstage area at the Montreal Forum, and I would do that often. And I had a chance to meet Pat back there, uh, back in 1985. Uh, the Reckless album for non-Canadians, for, for the Brits and for the Americans, it, did, did it touch you at all? Did it affect you at all? Did you hear about it? Did, or was it sort of like, eh, that's, that's, that's a Canadian thing? No, it was... Uh... I didn't know it was Canadian when I first heard it. Um, and I found it um, a very solid uh, compendium of songwriting. And to me, the fascination with Brian Adams is really Kim Valance. 
who was the primary writer. Um, I'd, I'd love for you to get him on, a, on, a, on an interview. I'd, I think he'd be a fabulous interview. But Jim Valance was the main writer for, for Brian. And um, he's a very, very accomplished writer. I mean, you know, Summer of 69 is a really cool little rock and roll song. Heaven is a cool little rock and roll song. Um, and, of course, it had the precision of Bob Clearmountain producing and mixing, um, which was something that we tried out with GNR, but um, Axel basically moved into the studio and camped out with Bob, and I think that was a little bit of a, um, a constriction and dampener to him, and uh, we ended up aborting all those mixes, and Bob actually requested that we destroy all the dats of those mixes once we decided that they were completely lacking in vitality and um, basically use your illusions was rescued by bill price That's oh and the other thing the other thing about brian adams that i find intriguing is that um, he had a little fling with princess diana back in about 1995-96 yes which i thought was uh, that was odd and by the way, the song Diana, a great, great song, which was recorded in this era of of reckless and stuff. And Brian put out a 30th anniversary box set and didn't include it out of respect for um, for Diana. But here, here's a, a fun. Well, he he claims he didn't. And everybody else who was around at the time said, oh, yes, he did. I've heard I've heard that uh, many times, but but here's yeah. the here are the fun uh, little facts about Brian Adams and uh, well, here, how can I put it this way? I, I like to get everything connected to uh, Kiss and to um, Foreigner, and of course, well, Brian, Brian Adams kissed Diana at the very least. We know that, <laughs> right? He he kissed a Foreigner. <laughs> no, but but uh, Eric Carr, who of course. Uh, was in Kiss, did some writing for Brian Adams on one of his albums. Huh? Did you know that? No, I didn't know that, but I do know that Brian depended on other people to write for him. I mean, the kid had one of those voices that you just go, oh my God, give him the phone book, it'll sound credible. Yes. Um, but he very much relied on other writers, and in relying on Jim Valance, he was incredibly astute. Yes, but so, so, here's, so here's this. On the album... Uh, Creatures of the Night from Kiss. Brian Adams has two songs on there that he wrote. Um, uh, uh, which, which were they again? I, I forget now. Hold on. It was uh, Rock and Roll Hell and War Machine, right? One of their one of their big popular ones. But on the Cuts Like a Knife album, Don't Leave Me Lonely was written by Eric Carr. And here's where we get to the foreigner part. The backing vocals on Cuts Like a Knife, The Best Was Yet to Come, and Straight from the Heart, which are three of the greatest songs in Canadian history, were all done by, guess who? You know, I, I have no idea, and I'm not going to get sucked in. Lou Graham. Lou Graham did all oh, the backing vocals. Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. And and I've, I've, I've asked Lou about it, and the story was essentially... They were recording an album uh, at the time. Uh, was it four? Or anyway, they were recording an album at the time, and they were in a studio nearby. And somebody said, "Hey, this kid needs some extra vocals. Anybody want to help out?" And Lou said, 
ah, whatever, I'll do it. And so on his Cuts Like a Knife album, Lou Graham ended up on, well, two of the greatest songs in his canon, uh, Cuts Like a Knife and Straight, uh, Straight from the Heart. So you've got Foreigner's Lou Graham at the height of his popularity in 83, singing backing well, you, vocals. You have two of the uh, genuinely um, extraordinary voices of rock and roll there, because Adam's voice is extraordinary, and Lou Graham's is just, I mean, just magic, magic voice. I'm trying to think here. So if you look back at the Foreigner, 81 had four, 84 had Agent Provocateur. So it must have been somewhere. Anyway, somewhere around there. But uh, just quickly, Brian Adams and Reckless, the, the, the album is just spectacular. And if you bought the original version years ago, go out and get this 30th anniversary box set. It came out in 2014. Seven bonus tracks added to the to the disc and then an entire BBC in concert live at the Hammersmith Odeon in April of 1985 and it's just absolutely absolutely spectacular but uh, well in t in terms of impact you were asking what sort of impact it had in the US don't forget that that record i think went five times platinum which was really exceptional in the day well, in Canada, it actually went diamond. Mm. Now, when you think about Canada now, back then, now, yeah. what was that? You know, they sold 300 copies in Greenland or something? No, it, it, it is a million. But when you think uh, about it back in the day, because 10 million is diamond in the States, or, or at least in the 80s it was. Yes, yes. But Canada around then was somewhere around 25 to 30 million people. And for it to go diamond essentially meant that one out of every 25 Canadians had bought the album. And that was unheard of. I mean, yeah. if, if you say to me, you know, one out of every 25 Americans bought Appetite for Destruction. I mean, how many albums would that have been? That would have been, you know an incredibly crazy number so so it, it was incredibly impressive and i'm not sure it might have been the first canadian act to sell diamond i think bruce springsteen had sold diamond. i have to check those facts i don't have them in front of me but yeah. it's one of those rarefied earth moments and uh great album it, it really put me back on on bottom bottom line it's a worthwhile record yeah and and it put me back on on the road to rock and roll i had after Kiss the Elder and stuff, I had sort of strayed into Rod Stewart and into Huey Lewis and stuff. And and Reckless got me back into that and then eventually over to Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and then over to Guns N' Roses and back into Kiss. And so it, it was one of those turning point albums for me that went, you know what? The kids just want to rock. You know, kids want to rock is, is, is what I want to do instead of, you know, having heart and soul and, and stuff like that. So. Well, most people don't understand understand it because it's such a dim, dark uh, distance in the past. But in the early 80s, rock and roll was very much disparaged uh, to the point where uh, I ended up forming a contract and signing a band that literally got laughed out of every single label in Los Angeles. And that was a band called Motley Crue. I mean, that's how... Mm. Um, ensconced in new wave that the industry consciousness was at that time, um, and and for me with Motley it was uh, it was one particular track. It was piece of your action, and uh, I'd been given the um, the Wagner recordings to see if we should 
you know, sign it. And I heard that track and I went, thank God, some rock and roll. This is, you know, almost as good a cheap trick. Let's do it. Yeah. And uh, that that's a good lead in for, for next week's episode. I will have producer Tom Worman on the phone talking about Motley Crue and Cheap Trick and Ted Nugent and all those bands that he's involved with. He has got an incredible story to tell, so we will get to that next week. But to awesome. end, yes, awesome it is. To end and to conclude our Canadian bookend episode, here is from the reckless Brian Adams band, the one, the only drummer, Pat Stewart. We are speaking with the odds drummer, Pat Stewart. Uh, good day, Pat. Of course, folks might know him from his day playing on Brian Adams' album, Reckless. Uh, Pat, a great pleasure to talk to you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for uh, having me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned this to you in, in correspondence, but I, I had a chance as a 17-year-old to go see Brian Adams' Reckless at the Montreal Forum. And I was wandering around backstage, and poop, there you were. You popped out. So we, we actually have had a chance to meet some... What is it? Uh, well, a lot of years ago, because we don't need to do math on this show. Yeah, it's um, 33 years. 33 years. Yeah, so that That's great crazy. times, great shows, by the way. Uh, absolutely. I remember that very specifically. You had done uh, two shows about a week apart. And in the first show, Brian went running into the audience and the security went running after him. And I was friends with head of security and, and the section show was coming up. And he said to me, he goes, if Brian does that again, we ain't running after him. So he'll just be torn apart by women. And, of course, Brian didn't run into the audience the second show wisely. <laughs> I guess he had been... Maybe somebody advised him, I wonder. I think the police or the security said to him, you're on your own yeah. if you do that shit again. So there you go. Right. Um, so let's, let's quickly, let's start here from, from now, and we'll work our way back to those days. But now you are in uh, The Odds, and the band is continuing to tour, continuing to to put out new music. It's been what, 30-plus years of the Oz with a little bit of a hiatus in there. But uh, just catch us up on what the band is doing these days, 2019. Okay. Well, we're currently in the middle of recording new music. We have about, I don't know, about 15 songs that are in various states of... Sometimes we demo them at a studio, and but, you know, because it's you're recording digitally a lot of it you're like you know what we can keep all that let's redo those guitars or keep everything let's redo the drums whatever so i got a playlist and i keep listening to what what are my favorite top five or maybe 10 because people you can't make maybe pearl jam can make 15 song records that's about it you know what i mean people don't have that kind of interest or attention nobody does i don't know what happened it all came when the internet not by something i don't know but so, you know, um, anyway, we have these songs that are in uh, various levels of halfway completion. So we're working on that. Um, for the last few years, we've actually been doing a lot of shows with, it, with Stephen Page. And we do, it's Odds with Stephen Page, or Stephen Page with Odds. Basically, we're his band. But we also do a, a few mashups, because as he says in his uh, rap to the crowd, that when he heard a single of ours, like it falls apart, he went, wow, I like that song. I want to write a song like that. And then he wrote old apartment type of thing. So we mashed these songs up. The temples are slightly different, but it, we can deal with it. And, um, so, and this summer was something just passed us, which is crazy. Um, how fast that went by, but we did quite a bunch of 
quite a lot of shows. Uh, we were out to the Maritimes. We've been out there about three times in the last year, which has been really nice because we were not out there for about 20 years. So, you know, we just keep busy doing our music, doing shows. We have a few uh, foundations that we do an annual event for, and it's usually related to healthcare related things with, with younger people or children. And a couple of those are based in Vancouver. So, and every year it's a, it's something great to look forward to because we always do something different and we bring in some players or some friends, Barney Bental, for example, he's tight with us on this one event that we do. But, um, we, uh, yeah, we, we keep busy doing that. And then we all, as is the way, you know, in the new, new millennium, uh, we've all got a few side projects going, you know, Craig work, started working with Stephen Page, Craig Northey, our singer, guitar player, uh, main lyricist. He started doing these duo shows with Stephen Page. And then a couple of years of that, Stephen went, well, I want to get the odds to be my band, but let's make my record. So Craig has a studio at his house, which is amazing. We just go up there. And so we made, we've done two records with Stephen now. Craig is super busy with TV related things like Corner Gas. We played the Corner Gas intro and outro themes um you know lots of different things come our way via craig sometimes or via other people and it's tv related kids in the hall have always been we've been tight with those guys since we first met in 91 and things are going on bruce mccullough has things going on and he'll often include craig in it which will be a phone call to me and i'll run up and before I'm about to hit the road with somebody, maybe Colin James or Matthew Good or something I've done over the last 10 or 15 years, like different side projects, I'll run up to Craig's and do a day of drums. And then, you know, I'll, the show comes out and I'm like, oh, right, I remember doing that. Okay. So it's, uh, you know, it's a whirlwind sometimes. You got to keep a few projects on the go, you know. So I have, I have a couple other side projects of my own. And then... You know, and then we all come together. The great thing is when we come together at the odds, we haven't played since we played last, which could be a week or a month. And uh, it's beautiful. We just, it's our DNA. We just show up and go and we just play, you know, we just throw and go, you know, no sound check. Those things don't really phase us. It's in fact, and I heard some other artists say this the other day, often those are our best shows. And they are. I, I feel like if you have a sound check, to, oh yeah, you guys got two hours. Those two hours, and oh, I can't quite hear that. Mm, and I need to hear more of this and that. But if you are just thrown up there, and we have this little mobile in-ear monitor system. Our bass player Doug Elliott, he's he's the captain on that one. If we just throw it up and go, and we do a show, it's awesome. It always works out really good. So. Sometimes I just kind of prefer that. Yeah, those are the best Maybe kind of gigs. Why. I was just going to say mm-hmm. those are the best gigs, and, and, and I think those are, the, are also the best way to do albums. I think when you have, you know, a million-dollar budget and, you know, four years to make an album, Time. you end up tinkering, 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 tinkering. Sometimes you just got to do like old Black Sabbath, get yep. in, plug in, play, and say thank you very much. And, and those mistakes become yep. part of the charm you know, you you look back to the early Black yeah. Sabbath albums, and it's chock full of mistakes all over the place, and you wouldn't change it for a thing because that's what makes them so unique and special. You know, right? Um, yeah. 
let me I go. Love that. That's a great reference because I love those early records. Those guys are amazing. Right, and you agree. There, there, there's full of mistakes. There, you know, there's, they're, they're playing well, ahead of the beat. For sure. But there are. But sometimes you, you, you're in there and you go, oh, I don't know about that. Well, let's let's sleep on it. It's midnight. Let's go home and sleep, and we'll come in. You come in the next day and listen. There's something that happens. You put on your super, uh, you know, a times ten antenna ears. And when when you just did a track and you listen, you go, oh, I wish I had done that better, or well, I blew that, or whatever. And on some another member band member will go, you know what? I think this can be fine. And next thing you play it, and you go, oh, it was that drum thing going into the chorus. And you go, I don't even hear it now. Like, no, that's fine. Let's move on. You know. So it's funny. But there's something that happens when you've got. I don't walk in and, and have to put myself into a zen state and go, okay, I got to really focus on it. I think you just naturally sort of do. But with a, when a day passes or a few days and you go back and listen, you don't even hear it. Nice. So I'm sure it was the same for those guys. It really was. Anyway. So, so let me take you back to this monumental album, the, the Reckless album, which, of course, has mm. gone diamond in Canada. One of the very few. I think it was like one of like four albums that have gone diamond in Canada. Um, talk to me about that, because, of course, we have Mickey Curry, who was with the band and then he left to go do something else. You're brought in. How do you get brought in to Reckless? And let's start there and let's work our way to. Okay. I got a drumming gig, and then the next thing you know, I'm on stage at Live Aid because it, it was a rapid, yep. rapid ascent on that album. It For, really was. So, so how do you get the gig? You're sitting around the living room, the phone rings, and who's on the other side saying, "Hey, I need a drummer." It was technically very close to that. So in 83, um, I'd been going out of high school in 1980, and I went to this, took this music program in a town called Nanaimo, which is on Vancouver Island, north of Victoria. So I'd been over there for a couple of years, uh, taking this jazz music program, and then I taught for a year. But meanwhile, I had this band going, this guy and I put this band together, and then I was obsessed in those days. Not obsessed, I guess, but I was certainly very into Stuart Copeland. And then the the next thing after that was a band called XTC and Big C, Black C was the album that was pretty current right around that time. And then they did a record called English Settlement. So there's a few things right around there. Terry Chambers is that drummer and he's incredible. Like all your listeners, if, if you're interested in things, go check out early Terry Chambers on XTC. But anyway... So we had this band. This one guy was a writer, but he was like, oh, this Pat, this guy's a different drummer. Like, because I was up for not doing Almond Brothers feels. Sure, let's do that. But listen to this thing. And it was like working for paper and iron or walking on the moon or all these things that were nobody had really done that. If you lived in bigger centers and you heard a lot of reggae and a lot of Jamaican music, you would know about it. But I lived in small town BC where they, they liked maybe Thin Lizzy and, you know, it's just the hard rock, the ACDC, the Bob Seger of the days. So, you know, a band like that, we were, you know, we there were places to play, but we were pretty sure nobody really liked us, you know. So we moved to the city. And the crazy thing is within six months of moving to Vancouver, was I hooked up with Brian Adams. So that was our like I said, it was hard to work with a band like that. We rented a house in East Vancouver for six hundred dollars a month and we all lived in there and everyone knew everyone's business. It was a bit it was pretty confined quarters, but and we were uh Doug Elliott was a bass player and I we were about twenty one or something. 
then uh, so we we thought let's go talk to the Felpen agency. Maybe they can figure out something creative that we could. We need to work more. We need to make more money. You know, it didn't occur to me. Hey, go join another band and and go teach and and go go down to the go hang at these jams and meet more people and get involved in more stuff. It just didn't. It wasn't on my radar. You know, at twenty one. And so they said, well, look at. You know, Platinum Blonde got their start as a police tribute. Maybe you could do something like that, blah, blah, blah. They go, look at here. And they, so they give you a night at, at, a, at a club. They had these top 40 bands that would play just the top 40 music of the day. And it was very, it was kind of one dimensional stuff. A few good players came from there. Keith Scott from Brian's band came sort of from that world. And he was outstanding as a musician anyway. So he didn't even belong there. But um, so we go do a showcase at this club. And then there's some cover band there. And then in that band is a guy named John Webster, who in those days was a keyboard player. It was for years was with Red Rider, Tom Cochran. So when he's off the road, same, same as anyone does when you're off the road, you're like, I don't want to just sit. So I like playing music. So you, you have other projects you do. So he saw our band. We were called Rubber Biscuit. And uh, after the Blues Brothers tune, Although we didn't do Blues Brothers music at all. We were doing this weird hybrid British ska, um, English beat, XTC, police hybrid. And writing our own songs and using those kind of groups. So this band, so we're playing around. This guy, John Webster, is a roommate in a house in East Van with Keith Scott. And he knows that those guys have been looking for drummers. And, you know, uh, Brian's manager, Bruce Allen, and the Feldman agency, Sam Feldman, they're, they're sort of in cahoots together with all kinds of business. And they, they just figure, well, we'll get you a drummer. We got tons of drummers in club bands and those guys went around town and there, everyone was trying to be something and no one really had their own identity. I think, you know, so then John Webster said, I saw this band tonight. I don't know if it's right for you guys or something, but you should go check it out. Cause I saw this, this drummer, it was very different. That's roughly what he he, I, I run into him from time to time in recording sessions, and he recently was just telling me this, you know, uh, how how it went on his end. So then there's a little original music club in Vancouver in, this is now sort of 1984, like January. And like I said, I've been in town about five or six months. We're doing the odd gig with our band, and there's a, an original music club called the Waterfront Cabaret, and it's in this real kind of greasy part of town where like a lot of longshoremen and a lot of ships from uh, Asia and stuff parked there. And the guys come ashore and they go to some bars or whatever. And, and sometimes they're at this place, but the guy that runs the, 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 the cabaret loves our band. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for the month of February. And you guys can, uh, you know, come in the day, you can write on, work on your music and record to cassette tape out at the front front of house board which was that's what you had in those days modern modern technology at its best that's right right. nothing like board tapes to cassette yeah yep yeah and uh and that's what we did so we're like monday tuesday you know we go down monday morning monday at noon set up our gear work on songs go home eat come back and play that night to no one we play to no one or we play to a couple of people or whatever so there we are it's a tuesday night it's february it's pissing rain out as it does out here for months on end and um, there's two guys, literally two guys in front that are passed out and on, on a sort of a row of chairs, 
um, and then there's a sort of dance floor thing and we're playing. And then there's like three guys in the back somewhere in the dark. I can't even see them. But after every song or even after some solos, they're clapping because we had this amazing guitar player in the band and two guitar players that were brothers. But so after solos, you know, which is, I'm like, okay, I go to the jazz shows. That's what you do. But this is kind of amazing. So on the break, I thought, well, I'll go out. There's, what am I going to do? I'm going to go talk to these guys, see what's going on. So now I was aware of who Brian Adams was in those days because Cuts Like a Knife, that album had already happened and it was pretty yep. big. And I, I, I did like that song. I heard it on the radio. And my friends played it in a band or something, but it wasn't on my radar. I was buying, you know, the sort of indie records and, and ska and weird British stuff, you know. And, um, and so, but I'd seen in Music Express, there had recently been a huge feature about Brian Adams and there was all these photos of him on there, you know? So anyway, back to the club, I go out and I sit down and start talking to these guys. And, and uh, I have no idea who I'm talking to, blah, blah, blah. And I go, Oh, you guys play music. And, and then Keith, uh, one guy goes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we got a band, I guess. And I guess it's his band. He points at the other guy and I go, Oh yeah, that's cool. I go, yeah, I do that too. This week it's my band. Last week it was the bass players. We just, you know, keep it interesting or whatever. And then we're uh, just talking about stuff. And then I suddenly, I started kind of going to a dream, you know, you're daydreaming, thinking about something. And I'm staring at this dude and I go, shit, I think that's that guy on the cover of the Music Express magazine. That's it. And he's going, and then I was sort of like looking stunned or something. He goes, what's up? I go, sorry. I go, is your name Brian? He goes, yeah. And I go, oh, wow. And, that, and it blew my mind because I'd like, I've never met anybody famous. So, and then we talk a bit more. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, I've seen this guy, Keith Scott, in a club about a year or two ago when I was going to college. In this club in the Nymo. And I remember watching this guy and going, that guy has the best tone. Like, that is one of the best players I've ever seen. Like, especially in those club bands, because they were all just learning David Bowie tunes or whatever was the cover music of the day. So so now I'm talking to these students. I'm going, well, this is amazing. And then the third guy's a good buddy of theirs. So then I go, okay, well, I got to go play another set. I, I said, okay, here's my number. Cause I just thought I, in my mind, I thought, man, if you ever meet somebody amazing, I always said Jeff Beck, if you met him, you'd want to ha- at least have the opportunity to say, I'd love to, you know, if you ever wanted to do some playing, of course. And they go, okay, great. Yeah. And they take my card, my number or whatever. And so a few days later, not so much sitting in the living room and the phone rang, but the phone rang in the kitchen and wherever I was and they go, Hey, Pat, phone. And, uh, oh, hi. And then I kind of right away, I recognize your voice. And then I kind of sh- shot of adrenaline. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is pretty amazing. And he goes, yeah, um, actually, we are looking. For, we do want to get together and play with you because we're looking for a drummer. I'm like, oh, OK, that's amazing. Uh, and so, like I said, we all know it's a small house when no one has any money. We all know everyone's business. So I, I had a little section in the basement where we put a couple of pieces of plywood up and I had a, like a hide a bed thing that that was, and my cassette player and my tapes, that's all I owned. And I lived down there in the basement. Let me, uh, so I took my, let, yeah. if, if I can, let me just fast forward you here to, to the recording sessions. Yeah. When, when you come okay. in to, to reckless, um, are, are the songs complete and you just have to add drums to them? Or, or how much Pretty create? Much. Okay. So, so that would, how can I put that? You had no creative input at all in sense of did they tell you the parts to play and said, okay, we want, we want, you know, whatever, run to you to sound like this, try to, try to make. Well, okay. So the songs I played on that record are Summer 69, right? One Night Love Affair and Kids Want to Rock. Wow. We also did another song we recorded, but 
it didn't make it and it's called reckless it was re-released uh the demo of it because they couldn't find the one we did which is too bad so the demo of it is on the 30th anniversary of reckless and that's jim balance playing drums Oh, wow. And so, that's, by the way, a, a great, great box set, which I actually happen to have right next to me here because it sits on my okay. desk here because uh, I was going to ask you about that. They do those songs, yeah. uh, Let Me Down Easy, Teacher, Teacher, Boys Night Out, Draw the Line, et cetera, et cetera. Are you on any All of that history. stuff? Pardon me? You, no, the only other track that I did do, and maybe, you know, if you don't, that'd be amazing if I had something on you, Mitch, but uh, the yeah. Reggae Christmas. Oh, I have that too. I have it all. Yeah. That's on the uh, Japanese. you have it on the, uh, the red vinyl? No, uh, in, in, I might've had it on that back in the day, but no, in, in Japan in 2012, they re-released Reckless with bonus tracks with include Diana Christmas time and reggae Christmas. And so I do have it on CD on that re-release and okay. So, so you only played on those, uh, what, three or four or five tracks. Um, so then talk to me about, uh, to answer your question there is, so, okay. So we, we, started getting together and doing some rehearsing and he goes hey are you in town this weekend i go yeah he goes okay good because clear mountain's coming to town i'm like who's clear mountain i already heard the name i thought he lived in vancouver you know i didn't know anything (laughs) so bob clear mountain comes in right he's he engineered produced a lot of those early records and still mix and mixed them like he he would do all of it and so i'm in a room with brian and him and keith and dave taylor the bass player and we're working out parts so uh as far as creative goes First of all, he would present these songs to you. They were complete. The arrangements were complete. He, his co-writer, Jim Balance, is a fantastic drummer and a lover of Ringo Starr. He's a great drummer. So the, demo, the stuff's all there. I mean, the things he, I wouldn't do or I would do my own thing, maybe. But, but we did sit and work out the arrangement, the drum arrangement of Summer 69. So I'm sitting with these two guys who are, he's one of, he's one of the top songwriters in the world even then. With this guy who's who's worked with freaking Bob Claremountain. He's worked with everybody. And they're going, okay, well, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to do the flam. I actually just got an email from Brian last night. Brian, uh, Somebody asked me, to go, whose idea was the flam? And I went, geez, no one's asked me that one. You know what? I think probably Brian, but I don't know. And I threw it out there, and Brian goes, yeah, that was me. I go, yeah, that's what I thought. But um, so it's like two, three, flam, guitar. And then we sat and talked about what the drums should do there. And so I, you know, a bunch of that stuff on the intro there, that was just sort of, he goes, yeah, just don't play any bass drum there. But I thought, well, you should do something, you know, boom, boom, tacking, 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 boom, you know. So some of that was me, a lot of the fills and things throughout, like play the sections, you know, play the arrangement. And the big fill in the middle, he had an idea and we stopped. We did this one, and, and Clear Mountain's going, that seems a bit too busy. So then we, uh, between him and I, worked on it and edited it down a little bit, and then we came up with that big backwards uh, Tom film. All that stuff, uh, classic, classic, classic. Now, um, before we leave here, uh, talk to me about Live Aid, because as a kid back in the day, we all got up at whatever, five or six in the morning to turn on Live Aid to watch the British feed or the UK or the European feed live. And you got to play, I guess, in Philadelphia. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that experience, because that was not just a concert. That was a, a cultural event, for the lack of a better word. Um, talk to me about the, the lead up to that and playing that. And what do, you, what do you take from that and remember from it? What I remember from it, it was, it was uh, really hot, really humid. And the sticks, I used to sand, uh, sand the varnish off a bit 
just to get a good grip. I didn't really wear golf gloves like some people, but um, uh, so it was a very frantic set because it was like, we got to go, go, go. We got to get up there and go. And now the sticks were just like, they're kind of flying out of my hands because I just was sweating so much. I'm like, get those sweatbands, those Sabian sweatbands or something. I never wear sweatbands, but I had to. And and there was some there were some things with some of my gear that was a little bit it was a bit frantic right out of the gate. It took a couple songs to kind of settle in. Plus, I'm looking out there going, "Holy crap, that's like uh, I don't know. I think it was ninety thousand people were right there." But then it's on TV, and you're not really thinking about all that, you know. Um, so, and you know, it just came up. We had no idea. We were like doing our shows. Ken Mitchell was opening for us. We were in the states. And uh, we're like, oh, yeah, okay, guys, so tomorrow, uh, I think maybe it was a day off, or we did a show and then flew right after or something. And uh, we get into Philadelphia, and, you know, it was just, we're going to do this show tomorrow, this outdoor thing, is a whole bunch of bands. It was, there was no, there was no, there wasn't, all, sometimes there's not a lot of info out there, and you're just doing your work. He's got so many things to do. He's not able to sit down and go, holy shit, guys, here's what's about to happen. Get your minds ready to be blown. You know, like it just doesn't happen. So we just sort of showed up and it was another gig, another outdoor gig. And uh, we get there and I'm, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm excited. I'm like, wow. And I'm walking around and I go, well, there's Paul Stanley sitting with uh, a set of twins who with some augmentation to their bodies. And well, of course he's with them. He's Paul Stanley. And then around the corner is Crosby Stills and Nash and Young. And I'm setting, I'm tweaking my drum kit on a giant round stage behind me is the stage and REO Speedwagon, who were a big deal in those days. They're playing. I'm getting my set already because when they end, the stage spins around and we're going to be going, you know? Uh, so it's just like bang, bang, bang. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was frantic and very exciting, you yeah, know, and, and amazing to be there. But it, you know, it kind of, I don't know. I don't think it really super resonated. You know, Paul, Paul Schaefer sat in and played with us and he was already a fan. He always played those songs on the Letterman show, right? Yeah. You know? Then we then then we flew out to the airport, got a like in a, a I'd never been in one of those. Boom, fly, we're landing in some little area, and then we stop and grab something to eat. And I remember sitting there with Bruce Allen and the guys, and, and just kind of looking at him like, whew, like you just finished running a race or something. You were just sitting there, and it's like, okay, let's catch our breath here. Yeah, that was uh, kind of cool. What just happened? Uh, so and, yeah. and, let, and let me finish with this here today. Uh, summer of '69, of course. You 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 played on. You you just mentioned that one of the greatest Canadian singles ever. I mean, wherever you go in the world, you hear those opening bars or notes or whatever, and you go, yeah, and you start you start singing along. Um, do you get a thrill when you hear that on the radio? And 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 sort of what does it feel like in terms of pride to know that you played on what is not just a song, but it's it's this. Canadian iconic thing that, that everybody knows. I mean, it's not just a ditty. It's, it's, it's the song, right? You know, about 20 years ago, it kind of dawned on me, like I was in a club in Kingston, Ontario. And after a show with, with another band and then this came on and then, and they did that thing where maybe the guy had seen, cause live, even back then we just hit the flam and he go, I don't know when the last time it was that he sang that whole thing and played guitar, you know, cause he just hits it once and the whole room goes. And I, this happened in a club and I was standing there. I was with the guys from 5440 and, and, um, it, one of those guys, he looks at me and his kind of eyebrows and kind of laughing. I go, wow. And it's just on that moment, that was in about 99. And I was like, this is kind of like a, 
like a, an anthem to people. This is like, this is something, you know? So, um, I kind of realized that, you know, I went and saw them when they were here a couple of months ago. It was an amazing show. The song was amazing. There's so many great songs, but, um, yeah, you know, when I hear those songs, sometimes I'll be with my wife and we're talking about something or it could be on many different levels of our conversation and uh, we'll have the radio on in the background, that, that song comes on or sometimes uh, one of the other songs that I played on of his or something, you know, and it's just kind of odd. It, it, it just goes on in my life like it's there, you know, um, but I, you know, if I'm driving around and I hear, I hear even other songs from that record that I didn't play. Uh, somebody or or Runcher or something. I kind of crank it. I just crank it because the record sounds good, and you know it just brings back a memory. And I, I love listening to rock and roll. And roll. So you know, if if I played on it and it's going on, I'll still listen to it and crank it because uh, I just love listening to everything that's going on. The guitar playing's amazing, and it's so much stuff. So and, and the songs yeah, are I, amazing. I, I the Tina Turner cover or no, Tina Turner duet, yeah. I should say, is great. Uh, Pat, an absolute, absolute pleasure, and uh, unfortunately, I've run out of time, but hopefully we can do a part two, because there's so many stories to, to go in. We, there's also the Brian Adams 11 album that you that you lent some drum, drum tracks to. So much more to cover. Uh, absolute pleasure. Yeah, let's, uh, let's hit pause, and let's do it again. Merci, merci. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Mitch. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.